Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. And our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm Louis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. As the nation continues to focus on racial justice, in some cases peacefully and in others not, the push for requiring all students to take ethnic studies courses continues in California. California is now on track to require an ethnic studies course, not only to graduate from high school, but also to get a degree from the California State University. We'll speak with Dr. Shirley Weber, who's an author of two pieces of legislation, one already signed by Governor Newsom and another awaiting his signature. But John, first we wanted to focus our attention on a more immediate challenge, perhaps an insurmountable one, whether it's possible to bring back students to college campuses safely during a pandemic. Several University of California campuses have already opened up their dorms to a relatively small number of students, and several are still planning to do so when they open at the end of this month. But this week, developments at Chico State University, one of the 23 CSU campuses, sent a discouraging message to anyone hoping that students can return to campus safely this fall. Chico State, which is about an hour and a half's drive north of Sacramento, became the first campus in California to take the drastic action of closing its dorms. And that was just one week after students moved in. The university also moved to terminate, at least for now, almost all of the small number of in-person classes it was offering. Admittedly, the 750 students who were affected were only a small portion of students who would normally be on campus during a normal school year, but the move came as a shock to everyone. Well, we have with us EdSource reporter Ashley Smith to map out the lay of the land on that front. Welcome, Ashley. Hi, Lewis. Glad to be here. Well, Ashley, tell me just before we jump into what happened this week, just explain. I thought that the CSU campuses had shut down. I mean, that was a big announcement a few months ago when the chancellor said that all the 23 campuses wouldn't be opening for in-person instruction. So what's the situation? Yes, I mean, technically they did. For the tens and thousands of classes that are offered across the CSU system, the vast majority of them have moved into a virtual environment. But there are some that you simply can't offer virtually. There are classes that have to be in person. They require labs. They require hands-on, face-to-face experience. And those are the classes that have continued to be in person despite everything else on campus moving into a virtual environment. There are also students on campus living in the dorms. So even if they are taking virtual classes, they had to stay in the dorms for some, perhaps an emergency, perhaps they are foster youth, or perhaps they just don't have a permanent home to go to. And so many of the universities kept their residential halls open for those students. So it sounds like probably every CSU campus, there's some students there in the dorms. Yes, very small number of students compared to the thousands that they're used to providing housing for. Tell us what happened at Chico State then. I mean, this is a rather dramatic thing that students moved in August 24th, started classes, and then what happened? 
Well, they started to see a spike in coronavirus cases among the 18 to 24-year-old population. I mean, this had been happening for the entire month of August, just an exponential growth of young people testing positive for COVID-19. And it really came to a head once classes started on August 24th. The number of cases, not just related to Chico State, but to the larger Butte County area, just grew into the hundreds. And so just to clarify, I mean, the vast majority of the 18 to 24 year olds that tested positive lived there in the Chico area. And that included students who were living in the dorms and also living off campus, right? Yes. The majority of cases have come from students that are living off campus, which, you know, that's a little bit more difficult of a population to control. They come and go. They move among different groups. I know it's hard to know exactly how the coronavirus spread in the area, but uh, to what extent is this related to, let's just say, irresponsible behavior on part of students? We've heard stories, we've talked to people who say that they've seen uh, a lot of young people in the Chico area partying or going to bars without masks on, hanging out in large groups together. I mean, how much of that we can directly attribute to this? We don't know exactly, and and I don't think we will know. You know, college students, especially those who work, they tend to be in at-risk environments. Um, They tend to work in fast food or retail, jobs where they are in contact with other people by nature of, of the job. So Can we say that it's a direct result of students partying? I think that that plays a large part, but there are probably some other reasons too. There was another outbreak of coronavirus at another CSU campus uh, this week. Uh, Tell us about that. Yes, San Diego State University announced this week that they too would be closing their in-person classes. But it's important to note that they are keeping their dorms open which is not something that Chico State decided to do, even though Chico State is making certain allowances. Um, And even the UC campuses, they are making certain allowances for students to uh, continue to live in the dorms. I did read that one of the things that Chico State could not do was really test all the students, for example, before they came and then on a regular basis to really track the spread of the virus. Is that something that you think would have helped? I just don't think they would have had the ability to test all of their students. We heard from Chancellor Tim White, the chancellor of the CSU system over the summer, that this is something that they looked at for all of the 23 campuses. They looked at uh, would they be able to test students? And he said it was just unaffordable. It was too expensive. It just wasn't something that they could undertake. We've been talking with Ashley Smith, EdSource reporter. Thanks for talking with us today, Ashley. Thanks, Lewis. Now let's get the perspective of Gail Hutchinson. She is the president of Chico State University, and she had to make what was no doubt the excruciatingly difficult decision to close the dorms. Welcome, President Hutchinson. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here today. You had to make a very difficult decision to send students home. That's true. A week after they had moved into the dorms. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, it wasn't thousands, but several hundred. Why did you feel you had to make that decision? Why did you feel you had no alternatives like to keep the students there? First and foremost, the COVID-19 coronavirus is novel and incredibly dangerous. 
And if you follow Butte County, it's been in steady increase pretty much after the 4th of July. As soon as students returned and prepared for the fall semester, Butte County, especially Chico, saw a tremendous spike in COVID between ages of 18 and 24. And we've been monitoring that very closely. And then we started having positive COVID cases in our residence hall, first among our RAs. Those are the resident... Residence assistants. Mm -hmm. And we watched that very closely, went through appropriate protocol. Uh, We moved people into quarantine and self-isolation spaces that we had, but the cases continued to increase. And once we saw this trajectory in the county among the 18 to 24-year-old, as well as the cases continue to increase on our campus alone, there was no other choice but to make that tough decision on Saturday afternoon and then do preparation Sunday to get all communications in place. I think many of our listeners, and we reported that several months ago, the Chancellor, Timothy White of CSU, basically said campuses, all 23 campuses would be going remote would effectively not be in normal session. So I think to many people, this would come as a surprise that you even had students on campus. How did that happen? You're right. Chancellor White, uh, through consultation with other members of the chancellor's office and all of the 23 presidents, based in science and based with the idea that we really want to continue providing our students with a high-quality education, we understood early on that we needed to be predominantly virtual for the fall semester with the hope that we could bring limited number of students to our campuses for in-person classes that were primarily laboratory or classes that required unique and specific equipment or were related to clinical types of programs like nursing for licensure. So that said, we were really trying to bring those students who definitely required either a laboratory or a studio like ceramic studio or a clinical like in nursing to be able to make progress toward their degree. So those were the students who were in the dorms who were taking those classes? Students in the dorms, uh, the 750, were primarily first year with a sprinkling of of second-year students. We also thought it was very important to find a way to bring a limited number of first-year students to campus because we understand full well that for student retention, having students near us, near their academic programs, would really support that. And so it was our hope that our first-year students would be able to come and commit to what we call our COVID commitments, our our wildcat COVID commitments, which aligns with CDC and and other guidelines that we see, and that we could mitigate the spread. Uh, Unfortunately, that did not happen. Do you think in hindsight that it is possible to have students come back, given all the precautions that you took, that it was still hard to make this work, or it didn't work? The majority of students who are at Chico State and living in the city of Chico, the majority of students, I am sure, are doing the best they can to mitigate the spread like all of us are doing. But I just wish a small minority of student would have maybe taken this more seriously and understood more deeply the impact to not only their own health and perhaps the health of their family and friends, but to the health of the community. But I remain hopeful. I think, first of all, let me say the governor and our Butte County Public Health have done excellent job of helping to lead us through this pandemic. 
I do wish that we had better leadership broadly in, in a way that all people could come together and understand the seriousness of this disease and not doubt it. I think that would have gone a long way in helping us keep our students on campus. You're referring to national leadership. Yes, I am. Let me ask you about, you refer to them as a minority of students who obviously did not follow the guidelines that have been laid out. And I know at least one of your administrators talked about discipline and that you are looking into some disciplinary procedures with some of those students. Where does that stand? And do you have any ability to control behavior that doesn't happen on campus? Isn't that a major challenge? There are so many variables that influence the spread of this disease. Uh, this disease is highly contagious. And it's so important to acknowledge that because there is a tendency right now to want to assign blame to students, you know, just those students who maybe are attending off-campus parties. I don't condone that behavior. I think that's irresponsible in so many ways. But I did want to just point out that those variables are important. So, for instance, in order to work to hold students accountable, we're working with the city manager, but also property owners then the city is looking to do code enforcement with regard to unruly gathering. The property managers are looking to give citation to the residents around their rules for no gatherings. And if those are reported to us and we can identify students, then we launch an investigation through our student conduct office and through that investigation make a determination as to whether students have violated the student code of conduct. If students have violated the student code of conduct, then yes, they are, are sanctioned and uh, held responsible. And uh, what does that mean, sanctioned? It depends on the violation. So I think it could go anywhere from uh, getting a warning, do better, to maybe a suspension or an expulsion. But it would have to be severe to, to end up with an expulsion. And you haven't had to do that yet? No, I have not. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That was Chico State President Gail Hutchinson. When we return, we'll talk about ethnic studies. Last month, Governor Newsom signed into law a bill requiring CSU graduates to take a course in ethnic studies. Before they adjourned on Monday, lawmakers in Sacramento signed a bill to require a semester course in ethnic studies for all high school graduates starting in 2030. The bill is now on Governor Newsom's desk and things are looking promising to backers of the bill that he'll sign it. So we're pleased to have with us Assemblywoman Shirley Weber of San Diego, who is a member of the Assembly Education Committee. She's been a force behind both ethnic studies bills. She's also served on the San Diego Unified School Board, and she created the African American Studies Program at San Diego State, where she is a professor emeritus. Welcome, Dr. Weber. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. You were the co-author or author of both bills, and they both passed easily this year. No doubt the public's recognition of the Black Lives Matter protest movement and the police killing of George Floyd raised the visibility of the ethnic studies bills. But what do you attribute their success to after working so many years for their passage? I think those incidents that occurred helped obviously raise the consciousness of individuals concerning the need for information and clarity and and those kinds of things. But we began this journey six or seven years ago in the assembly. So 
Every year we've been priming the members of the assembly whether it's Black History Month or Chicano History Month to basically look at history and to realize how deficient we are in terms of what we know about Californians, what we know about uh, African Americans across the nation. And so I've been pushing every year this whole issue of ethnic studies. And we've been working with the chancellor's office to try to come to some resolution regarding it. So it's been a journey, quite a journey. Assemblyman Weber, one of the issues that came up with a higher ed bill was that, the, as you know, the academic senate for CSU had come up with a different plan. And it's uh, very controversial. Uh, usually it's the faculty that decide what courses should get taught and so on. And this, to many, it did seem like that the legislature was kind of intruding into what really should be a decision should be made at the faculty level. And you're a professor emeritus and, at fact, at CSU. What was your feeling about that? Well, you know, the faculty did do this. In other words, the recommendation for three units of credit actually came from the faculty itself. The uh, California Faculty Association and the commission that the chancellor had formed, which was a statewide commission of ethnic studies statewide. I mean, these were faculty members who actually wanted this to happen and had participated in the process. I became the author of the bill, probably because I understood more than many of the other legislators what the details were and why this was important. But it really came from the faculty. But just to clarify, the Faculty Association is the union that represents the faculty, but this Faculty Senate, the Academic Senate, that's the official body representing the faculty when it comes to academic matters. Well, if you probably ask faculty, they probably wouldn't say that the Senate doesn't necessarily represent the grassroots individuals who teach at the university. And I was a member of the Academic Senate, so I understand exactly what the Senate does, what it does not, and those kinds of things. And so, but keep in mind, we were not writing curriculum. The legislature did not write the curriculum. But at the same time, as I pointed out, every now and then, the legislature has to weigh in on issues because if we've got institutions that are difficult and unwilling to bend after years and years, and the public is crying for change, are we to ignore them for what we consider institutional kind of parameters and and the fact that the institution itself is difficult always to change? One of the questions for a high school is whether or not it should sort of address the student population it serves that may be different ethnicities and races. And so in your view, do you think a a course that's uh, taught in Livermore should be the same as taught in Los Angeles or Bakersfield, even though the student maybe different. What they're arguing, and and then that is true, we will argue the fact that the content material should be the same, that students who are taking a course in Chicano history should get Chicano history. But the, the concern was, okay, if we're in a very, very Chicano neighborhood, it may be that the course is slanted more toward Chicanos, but still with information concerning other groups. And that's what they meant, that it wouldn't just not cover the four groups at all. It has to cover the four groups, but it may have a heavier lean in certain communities versus in other communities to meet the needs of those students to help them understand the world in which they live. I would imagine uh, one would be more almost, uh, in fact, it talks about it, a self-empowerment course, and it may not be the same as, say, in San Ramon or someplace uh where there are fewer African-Americans and Latinos? Well, I I think it is. Ethnic studies is empowering, but I think it also empowers white people as well, white students. I mean, I've discovered when I, after the 50 years of teaching ethnic studies that my white students are equally empowered to understand themselves and the world in which they exist, because they have a lot of questions about why things are the way they are. 
and they have no answers to them. And when they begin to look at the history from the perspective of someone else, it gives them that information. But for our students, it should be very empowering. And we've seen that in the data when students actually learn about themselves, they learn about those around them. It somehow it gives them purpose. It helps them realize that they are contributors to this society and that they have also responsibilities to the people who came before them to, to try to live up to that legacy. Do you see that if there is movement on both of these fronts, the K-12 level and at the post-secondary, that this will make a difference in terms of achieving the kind of society that uh, we're all striving for? Well, I think that's true. And I think maybe because for the past few years when we've tried to deal with them, we didn't deal with them deeply enough and sincere enough. I think we're in a situation now where we can't nibble around the edges. Clearly, we cannot continue down this path. It cannot be a constant effort of attacks and marches and burnings and attacks and marching and people losing faith and hope in each other. So I, I, I'm optimistic that this is one of the important pieces because education is always an important piece to help people understand who they are and who they relate to and how they can build stronger relationships. And that is going to be significant, we think, for California and for people across the nation. And so, uh, yes, this will be an important piece. Knowledge is power. And we hope that we will empower our students to really appreciate each other and to get beyond just the, the slogans and the statements that they have and really begin to fashion a California that is a majority ethnic state that has uh, tremendous challenges, but obviously tremendous opportunities to be a role model for what the world can look at and truly see a, a diverse state that can actually function well with equal opportunity and access for all. And people can work together without finding themselves in these horrible situations as we are right now. Well, thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Shirley Weber, who has been advocating the requirement of ethnic studies courses in K-12 and in college for years, and in this year, she succeeded. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Weber. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about it. You guys have a great day. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thanks, Kobe. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and its source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Be well. We'll be back next week. Bye.